Today we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 15. If you have a Bible, uh, let's open up there. As we study some really huge things uh, tonight, and I hope, I want to kind of give you a heads up, or I guess a warning that I have some dad jokes later. And so just get ready, okay? Verse 1. Notice what we read here in Proverbs 15. It says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so uh, I want to mention this to you, not to sound technical, but I think it's good when you're going through the Proverbs to know the different parallelisms. This is what's called an antithetical parallelism. And what that means is you are contrasting thoughts. And so first here you see the right way, and then after that you see the wrong way. The right way, it says a soft answer. It turns away wrath. But the wrong way is a harsh response or a harsh word, it stirs up anger. And so we see this frequently in the Proverbs. Uh, we're reminded of the significance of our speech. As a matter of fact, seven times in this chapter alone, we'll talk about teaching and taming that tongue. And so some people might say it's redundant why he talks about this all the time. But I was thinking about this. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever watched the NBA games. And I think about these guys that are making a gazillion dollars and they can't make free throws, right? And I was like, man, um, if I were making that much money, I would just be, you know, practicing and practicing until I got it right. And, uh, and, and I think that the Lord, uh, a lot of times when we're dealing with things that are significant, things that are important, he just keeps hammering it over and over again. Because we have a, a big problem. It creates divorces. It, it can get you fired. I mean, it, it can ruin relationships for the rest of your life if we don't learn how to tame our tongue. And so we're going to experience people getting mad at us. We're going to experience the wrath that uh, comes our way. And so what we read right here is that a soft answer, it turns away wrath. Notice it says, but a, a harsh word stirs up anger. It's interesting, even in the Hebrew language, that's a singular word, a, a harsh word. It doesn't even have to be a lot of words. It could just be one word that you say. Or maybe sometimes we're insisting on getting the last word in the argument. You know, but just that one word that we say can actually stir up anger. And so it's not exaggeration to consider the possibility that the harsh words can actually ruin uh, much of our calling in life. And so, again, whenever someone gets upset or angry with us, we all have a choice. We can stir it up or we can tone it down. The latter requires a tremendous amount of self-control. But, oh, the wisdom of diffusing or, you know, um, the police officers, you can ask them, they, they are trained to de-escalate situations and we thank God for that heart uh, I was uh, reading a, a commentary by Ray Comfort and he gave a story about um, how one day he was preaching and while he was preaching he could tell that he was upsetting someone and so after the service the lady just started storming towards him and she knew man she's mad but you know what he said right away he said that's a nice sweater that you're wearing it's the very first thing he said <laughs> And he just said that that just, it diffused the situation. And so God give us wisdom uh, to give the, the soft answer. 
You know, Proverbs 25:15 it says, "Patience can persuade a prince, and soft speech can break bones." Verse 2 is also dealing with the tongue. Notice it says, The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. And so, um, you know, it's good to have knowledge, information, education, right? But it's not enough to just have it. It's really what we do with that knowledge that determines whether we're wise or not. We have to use knowledge properly or rightly. And this verse right here, it emphasizes using that knowledge and connecting it with our tongue in a, in a right way. You know, you might read verse 1 and you're like, yeah, you know, a soft answer. It turns away wrath. And you're like, amen, so true. But what you do with that amen, what you do with that knowledge is really what makes the difference. If I trash talk and retaliate profusely when I'm offended, when I'm treated rudely, I don't possess the tongue of the wise, and I'm not using knowledge wisely. I think sometimes even Christians, they don't realize how blessed they are in knowing the Bible. And this knowledge that you have, may God give us wisdom to put it into practice properly and to use it wisely. You know, you get information about someone, and you go and gossip. That's not the right way of using knowledge. You take it to prayer. Or how about the gospel? You got the gospel, and you know the gospel, man, and how Jesus is the answer. In this crazy world that we're living in, tell them about Jesus. Tell them about the cross. Tell them about God's love. Tell them that all they have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they'll be saved. And what you're doing with that knowledge and connecting it with your tongue and, and sharing is you're, is you're using it rightly. You don't want to commit the sin of silence. You want to be able to share. Verse 3, it says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Okay, so just, uh, and I encourage you guys, uh, if you get a chance, or, or I can even give you a handout on the different types of Proverbs this one is not uh, antithetical. This is what's called uh, synthetic parallelism. And what it does is that the second line expands upon the first line. So it says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And so uh, does God have eyes? Well, Jesus does, but it's an anthropomorphic saying, you know, giving God human characteristics and basically saying that God is able to see everything and everyone. God's eyes are everywhere, and he's not just seeing or recording it like a camera. It says right here that he's watching. It says, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You know, the other day I uh, called my wife, Shelly, and she answered and said, Hey, man, I'm talking to you on my watch. And I asked her, are you watching me? <laughs> and, uh, you know, she would if he, she could probably, but uh, she can't, right? But God can. God is always watching us. We read back in Proverbs 5.21, remember we read, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. You know, you, you read verse 3, and it's not just to teach us the omniscience of God or the omnipresence of God. 
it's not just to teach us that God sees everything. What's the main motive of that passage? I believe the purpose is to eliminate the evil and elevate the good. You know, we usually act very differently if we know that certain people are watching us. And we need to realize and always be reminded. And that's why I think like if I were to ask you that theological question, whether or not God sees everything, we would all say yes. But but to realize it and then to be constantly reminded of it, it will change your life. It will change you as a husband, as a wife, as a dad, as a worker, as a person. It will literally change your life when you're cognizant of the continuous presence of God. Tragically, there are many reckless people and sometimes even decent people who believe that they can hide from God, that God doesn't see what they're doing. And that's why they do what they do. I was even thinking of Moses uh, in Exodus chapter 2. You guys remember what happened when he saw uh, one of the Hebrew slaves being mistreated. The Bible says that he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew in Exodus 2 verse 12. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And so Moses looked east. He looked west. He didn't see anyone. But he forgot to look north, huh? He forgot to look up. If he would have thought, if he would have realized that God sees me, it would have prevented him from killing that man. And I'm sure that, I don't know, you know, maybe that man would have got saved one day. Or, or I'm pretty sure that for the rest of his life, that event haunted him. There's forgiveness with the Lord, but I'll tell you, man, it helps a lot to know that God is watching we need to realize and we need to be reminded. Hebrews 4.13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so uh, every idle word, he sees everything, you guys. We are naked before him. And one day we'll stand before him and give an account. Verse 4, it says, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Now, this is, again, going back to uh, an antithetical parallelism. Uh, this is the good thing, a wholesome tongue. It's a tree of life. Think about how beautiful that is. But perverseness in it, it breaks the spirit. So you have the good way and you have the bad way. Um, uh, what a difference this is. Imagine a tree of life. You know, for someone or the one responsible for breaking someone's spirit, the contrast is that you crush their heart. Where, you know, breaking someone's spirit, think about that. Breaking someone's spirit, that means that they lose all confidence or enthusiasm or even at times the, mo the very motivation to live. How did that happen? It happened sometimes with the abusive words that are, are unleashed that we lash out on others. And so a wholesome tongue is like what we read in the book of Genesis. It's the tree of life. It's found in heaven. It's the tree of life. It's found three times in the book of Proverbs. It's a tree of life. The wholesome words are they're true. Uh, they're from above. They build up and don't tear down. 
So I encourage you always, always ask God for wisdom and how we speak to others. Ephesians 4.29, it says, Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. I, I don't know if a, a single word or sentence or conversation or moment or day can go by where you're, you know, you're, you're either building them up or you're tearing them down. That's the power of our words. The wholesome tongue is literally a healing tongue where your words are a source of healing and strength and growth to those who speak to you. I mean, you just never know, man. That little word, that little word of encouragement that you spoke to someone, it may have been random, but you had this in your heart. That could have been the very thing that saved their life. That when they went home that night and the enemy tried to get them with those thoughts of suicide, you gave them instead a tree of life. And the beautiful thing about a tree of life is it's not just you giving them like a piece of fruit. You're giving them a tree. And so the principle is this, that hurt people hurt people. And healed people heal people. And that's why you got to get, you got to let the Lord heal your heart. You got to let the Lord shower his love upon you. Because when you experience him mending your broken heart, then you will be used by him to help others. Verse uh, 5, it says, A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. And again, another very common principle in the Proverbs. Uh, again, picture yourself just shooting those free throws, man, because you want to get this one right. You just keep hearing it over and over and over again as God tries so hard to hammer this home. How we need to be receptive to our Father's instruction to be receptive even of godly correction. You know, it says right here that the fool thinks little of correction. He despises it while the prudent man values it and takes it to heart. It, it often starts in life with our physical or biological father, uh, depending on the type of dad you had, and then it flourishes with the instruction and correction of our Heavenly Father. Ray Comfort, he said, A father has an intuitive love for his children. He wants what's best for his own flesh and blood. He teaches them that fire burns, that water drowns, and that speed kills. Only a fool doesn't listen to advice provoked by love and given for our own good. And that's why I encourage you, continue to read your Bible. Your Bible is a love letter from your Father to you. You know, I'll be honest with you guys. I'll share this with you. You guys know that my dad passed away not too long ago. And he has, uh, before he, he left, he, he wrote a lot of journals. And I, I think he knew <laughs> that one day I would read them, to be honest. Because every once in a while, he'll say something really nice about me or whatever, you know, as I'm reading through it. And um, even though my dad, you know, growing up, he wasn't there to kind of guide me then, God got a hold of his life later. And now, in one sense, the Lord is using my, my dad to guide me now. And plus, you know, we have 
of course, our Heavenly Father. He continues his message to the family in verse 6. It says, In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but in the revenue of the wicked is trouble. So let me ask you guys a question. What would you rather have, trouble or treasure? <laughs> treasure, huh? You know, I'm sure all of you would vote for treasure, especially when you consider the treasure beyond measure, right? The spiritual treasure that can never be taken away in all of time or eternity. And it's not just some treasure. Notice again, it says in verse 6, In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. And so there's mom and, and dad who are saved and they're serving the Lord it's a Joshua 24:15 family. As for me and my house, you know, we will serve the Lord. And as we have that house, then we're laying this up for our children. We're laying up for them treasures that cannot be measured. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and still. You know, when you're living a, a life that, that's spiritual, you know, where your life, it really is revolving around the Lord. Jesus really is the epicenter of your life. He's the Lord of your life. He fills the rooms of your home, and your family will experience that treasure and it will never, it can never be taken away. You know, there's a really great song. Uh, if you guys ever have the chance to check it out, it's by Stephen Curtis Chapman. It's called The Treasure of Jesus. And I encourage you to check it out. Um, I love the song because he just makes everything so simple, you know, that all I want to do in life is I want to give people Jesus because I know he is the only one that can save them. I know what he did for my life. When I was dead in my sins, I was bound and in bondage and slavery to all the things that this world has to offer. I had no peace until Jesus came into my life and he was knocking on the door and one day I let him in. And so that's what we give you know, to our families. Now, verse 7, it says, The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the fools does not do so. And so we kind of already talked about this in verse 2. Um, there is the bad thing, that what the, what the fool says. But it's interesting here that this isn't the bad thing that the fool says. Here it's nothing that the fool says. Or as like Proverbs 15, 7 says in the NLT, the lips of the wise give good advice, but the heart of a fool has none to give you know it's so cool when god gives you his word and people have questions about life and they're looking for direction and you know the bible and you can give them godly counsel but if you don't know the word then you don't have anything to give now the sin of the wicked is not always that they pour out foolishness sometimes it's that they have nothing to pour out at all Verse 8, it says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who follows righteousness. 
And so we've been talking about antithetical parallelism and contrast. These are really huge contrasts. Imagine these are the things that are an abomination to God. And these are the things or the people that he loves. Here we read that the sacrifice of the wicked and, and the way of the wicked, we read in these two verses, is an abomination to the Lord. In verse 26, Lord willing, we'll see next week that even the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. But when you think about this, out of all these, what are the sacrifices? What's he talking about right here? That's profound to me when I consider this, that what he's talking about right here is religious stuff. So imagine the guy going to the tabernacle or imagine the guy going to the temple and he has this beautiful animal and that's valuable when you really think about it. And, you know, and he offers it as a sacrifice, you know, to God. But but the other guy, he doesn't bring an animal. He, he just brings a prayer. So, you know, we would look at that from the outside and we'd say, well, I'm sure God values the one who gave all the money. He gave a thousand dollars. This guy, all he brought was a prayer. But but it's all about the motivation of the heart. It's all about our life and, and why we do what we do, not just what we do. And so the sacrifice of the wicked is religious, but it's an abomination to him. That's why we have to make sure that none of us are perfect, but we're sincere and we're proper and we're seeking God. And we're not playing with sin. We're not holding on to sin. You know, we're not like, you know, defiant because God sees that. And then people say, well, then, but I go to church and I give to the church. That makes it worse. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. You know, and, and I know when, when you look at this, you might be thinking, well, that's for the people who do drugs and they have sex and, you know, all that side of marriage and, and they get drunk. But but really, the probably the, the epitome of an example is found in the New Testament in Luke chapter 18 in verse 9. It says, and, and he spoke, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, the one who thought that they had it all together, they were very self-righteous, and they were looking down on others, that's the one the Lord said the sacrifice is an abomination. But the tax collector was repentant, and he was real, and he was humble. And he just goes to God, and he says, Be merciful to me, Lord, a sinner. And Jesus said, I heard his prayer, and he's accepted, and he's justified, but not this one. And so we need to make sure that our understanding is that God is not about the outside. You know, my wife was telling me a story uh, today, a, a true story about um, Elizabeth Elliot. 
in her early years. Some of you are familiar with her, Elizabeth Elliot. She's just a, a beautiful uh, missionary um, in, down in the jungles of Ecuador. God used her in a mighty way, and she has been given a lot of wisdom, has written great books. But in the early days, uh, she was involved in translating uh, the Bible in one of the, the languages out there in the jungles, and uh, she was making a lot of progress. And uh, it, she, it turns out that she had an individual she was working with that was like heaven sent, knew both languages well. And as she's nearing the end of finishing her project, uh, so for whatever reason, I guess there was uh, some type of, uh, um, uh, I don't know, this man had offended someone. He was murdered. And so Elizabeth Elliot was upset. She said, God, how could you allow this? I'm here translating the Bible and, you know, and I'm almost done. And now I've lost everything. And, and she was pretty upset with God and uh, didn't understand, I guess. And then the Lord began to teach her in that time uh, some important lessons. And uh, this is what stood out to me from the story is that Elizabeth Elliot thought that what she was doing, translating the Bible, was important to God, and therefore that made her important to God. But what the Lord began to teach her is what you do, it doesn't matter what it is, the religious stuff that you do, that doesn't make you important to God. You're important to God because you are made in His image already, no matter who you are. And he values you because of that. He loves you. So don't think that the one who's doing the religious stuff is more important than the one who's setting up the tent. Because I'm telling you, he's not. And so it's so cool to know that it's not about religion or sacrifice. It's just about the condition of the heart. Verse 10 says, Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way. And he who hates correction will die. And so the next three verses are synthetic parallelism. They kind of um, expand uh, upon what's been said in the first line. And the harsh discipline here is intended to get that disciple back to where they belong. You know, the one who forsakes the way... Now, you might remember in the New Testament, Christianity was called the way, right? And so here's someone who, uh, and I don't know for sure if it has a New Testament illusion or not, but someone who forsakes the way, there's harsh discipline uh, for them. This is, uh, as NIV, someone who's left the path or abandons the path or forsakes God's way. And, and so we're seeing that a lot during COVID. We're seeing that a lot, you know, as things are different. You know, not everyone's like you willing to meet outside in the dark, you know, and people are staying home or whatever. They're, they're, they're afraid or, or just, I don't know. And so a lot of people are actually, you know, falling away and struggling in their walk. And so if there's a resistance there, then the Bible says there's going to be some harsh discipline because whomever the Lord loves, he chastens. And Hebrews 12, 6 says he even scourges every son whom he receives. So scourging, that sounds pretty harsh, right? And you might wonder, well, why so harsh? And the answer is, is because if they hate correction, they'll die. You know, they might die physically, and they might die spiritually. 
And that's why this is such an important passage. You know, the children of Israel, as they wandered in the wilderness and they kept resisting the Holy Spirit and kept resisting the leadership of Moses, kept resisting the love of God over and over again, finally God said, enough. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10:5 that with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. In other words, they died. You know, I know some Christians now, uh, one guy, I remember, left his wife, and he thought he can go and do his own thing, and he died. And I, it was pretty clear that God killed him. It was a fluke accident. And, and then another guy, I remember coming to church here for a great while, and God was doing a work, but then he goes back, and he hangs out with the homies, and he gets shot. So prayerfully, some will say, well, you know, God killed them before they could fall away. I don't know. Maybe they fell away. All I know is that we have to be so careful. There's an important passage in James 5, 19 through 20. It says, brethren, if anyone, notice it's brethren, so he's speaking to Christians. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And so you have a brother who forsook the way and then someone goes and brings him back. What James is saying, this is the way he ends his letter, is you've just saved his soul from death. And so um, we have to make sure, you guys, if there's anyone here, maybe you've drifted away. Maybe there's a coldness in your heart. You know, you know you're not where you should be or you even know that you're heading in the wrong direction. I pray that you would hear Jesus calling you tonight back to where you belong. And it's not like you have to jump through hoops or, or live a perfect life. All you have to do is say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to come back to you today. Yes, Lord, I need you today. He brought you here. You might think that you're a drug baby and your parents drug you. No, the Lord brought you here because he loves you and he wants you to be on that road that leads to heaven. Verse 11, it says, Hell and destruction are before the Lord, so how much more the hearts of the sons of men. And so what he says right here is that God sees hell and destruction. In the Hebrew, these words are Sheol and Abaddon. And so Sheol is the abode of the dead, and Abaddon is the worst place therein. As a matter of fact, Abaddon is a title of the devil in Revelation 9, verse 11. And so what he's saying is that Jesus sees uh, these places. How much more does he see our hearts? And you can reference Job 26, 6 and Psalm 139, 7 and 8. He sees all hell and destruction, and he therefore sees the heart. And he's not able, only able to see the heart. But that's the focus of his gaze. You know, when I think about that, I think, wow, Lord, I remember when you chose a king for Israel. It says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, we look at the face. We look at the clothes. We look at the body. But God looks at the heart. And, and this was really a challenge for me, and I really believe God wants to challenge us tonight. What's in your heart? 
You know, sometimes I think God will put ugly things in our heart towards people. You know, and you're thinking that you're seeing that person and inside of you, there's something that's ugly towards that person. And you're living that way. God says, no, I want you to love every person. There should not be anything ugly in your heart towards anyone. I mean, it really, truly, I was thinking, Lord, this is an opportunity for us as a church when we're studying this, because you're, you're, you see hell and Sheol. I mean, if you see that, how much more do you see our hearts? If there's anything in my heart towards you or anyone or anything there that's ugly or icky or yucky, God, take it out. Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. You guys, I'm telling you, don't live with it. Don't live with the ugly stuff inside of your heart towards anybody. Verse 12, it says, A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. And we see this over and over again because repetition teaches a donkey. And I know I'm a donkey. I'm stubborn. And here we see that, um, you know, that, that we are not just to welcome correction, we are to love correction. The scoffer, he, he doesn't love God or the word, and therefore he avoids the people of God and the counsel they would give. You know, an implication is that we, the wise, should go to people, and we should even go to those that we might know they're going to hurt my feelings with the things that they say, but that's okay, right? You remember that story in First Kings chapter 22? When uh, Jehoshaphat uh, went down to um, Israel and he aligned himself with Ahab and they were going to uh, regain some property for, for Israel. They were going to go to war against Syria. And, uh, and so, you know, he's all, will you go to war with me? And, and Jehoshaphat said, sure, I'll go to war with you. And then what ended up happening was uh, Jehoshaphat said, hey, is there a prophet of the Lord here? And uh, Ahab said, there is this one guy, Micaiah, but I hate him because he always says bad things about me. And so, um, you know, they eventually have the guy come and the guy at first says, oh, you'll be OK. But then he's all, no, tell me the truth. And he said, I saw uh, the, the people of Israel. I saw them without a shepherd. And it's just, you know, when you when you read these stories, a, a scoffer, verse 12, he does not love one who corrects him nor will he go to the wise. He did not want to hear what this guy had to say. He didn't like what this guy had to say. But if only he would have listened, he would have lived. But he didn't listen, and he died. Verse 13 says, A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. And so the merry heart uh, found four times in the Bible, three times in the book of Proverbs, and even twice in this chapter. And Proverbs 17, 22, it says the merry heart, it does good like medicine. And so it's like the joyful heart, right? Or a whole and holy heart for God. It benefits others. It's, uh, it's spiritual. It's medicinal. It, it cheers others up. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I think some Christians, they don't have a merry heart. They don't have joy and they don't even have a sense of humor. You guys, we don't have to be so solemn. That's why I brought my dad jokes tonight. I want to tell you guys a couple of jokes. 
if I can read this thing. Oh, here's one. There was an interviewer. A guy goes looking for a job. And so the interviewer says, hey, we're looking for someone who is responsible. Do you fit that criteria? And the candidate said, well, in my last job, when the store caught fire, my boss said that I was responsible. Or how about that person who was, he was considering getting a job cleaning mirrors. And he said, it's something I can see myself doing. I thought that was funny. And then we're talking about gossip. It says, to all the coworkers who have talked about me behind my back, you disgust me. And you're like, you can't do that in church, man. You can't tell jokes. You guys, don't you think the Lord wants to see us smile? Don't you think it blesses him when we laugh? Uh, you know, they say that, that a sense of humor is like lubricant, you know, and it's like, it, you know, without it, it's rusty and dry and clanky. But when you get the, the WD-40 or whatever, the three-in-one oil, it's kind of cool the way that things work out. And so um, we need to have a merry heart, uh, a joy, and I, I, even, I even believe it has to do with a sense of humor. Because when we do, it makes a cheerful countenance. And the countenance is the face, which is a reflection of the heart. I'm telling you, I love being around people who are funny because they really actually do help me. Verse 14, it says, The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Okay, so I need to kind of go a little faster here. Um, basically, as a Christian, we, we seek knowledge. We want to feed on the Word of God. But unfortunately, there are those who have no hunger for God's Word, and they feed on foolishness. And so you're always eating something. We are consumers. Question, what are you feeding yourself? They say the average American feeds on 10 hours of media every day, 153 minutes of social media, and then there's 34 hours of television on average per week. Think about it. 34 hours? That's almost like another job. Verse 15, it says, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. And so, so much of life is what we make of it, isn't it? Here, imagine all your days being evil in contrast to one who is blessed with a continual feast. The image of a continual feast signifies the enjoyment of whatever life offers you. That's kind of how we have to take it, you guys, as those who are wise. Verse 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. And so you have the contrast here. This individual, they don't have a lot. They have uh, just a little. This one has great treasure. But the Lord says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasures with trouble. Or this one right here, they don't have uh, a really a good dinner. They got vegetables. When you go to Cambodia, you'll see that, especially uh, when you go out into the villages. But even the kids that we uh, are blessed to be a part of, the orphanage there in Phnom Penh, they have pretty much every day, they don't have meat. They have rice. They have some veggies. They don't have meat. When we go, it's a blessing. We get to give them chicken. 
And it's kind of funny because, you know, when you go and you get the chicken in Cambodia, you, you know, literally you're holding the whole chicken as you bring them back. You've been, you know, shopping out on the streets and then you bring it back. They eat everything, the, the beak, the feet, everything on that chicken. But, man, they, are, they love the Lord. They're so happy. And here we are. We got filet mignon. We got, you know, little Caesars or pizza or whatever the case may be. And a lot of times uh, we find ourselves so distant from God. And so, the, you know, we got to check our hearts. Where are we in all these things? Many are familiar with the name Warren Buffett. He's an American investor, a business tycoon, and the chairman and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. He's actually considered one of the most successful investors in the world. And he has a net worth. Check this out of $78.9 billion as of August 20th. And so making him the world's seventh wealthiest person. But you interview this guy, and it's an interesting thing. To his own admission, he lost the love of his life because of his busyness with his business. When he was gone most of the time. And so one day he came home, and when he got home, she was gone. Buffett later said that his wife Susan's leaving was the greatest failure of his life and 95% his own fault. It, it kind of reminds me, think about it, a man who has close to $80 billion, it kind of reminds me of what Solomon said, who had everything the world had to offer. He said, it's all vanity. And Buffett said this, it doesn't make any difference if you have a thousand dollars in the bank or a billion dollars. He went on to say that success is found in love. And as Christians, it, it doesn't matter the money stuff. I, I pray you would know the love that God has for you. I pray you would love him back. And I just pray you would love others. If you're blessed with, you know, those people around you that support you and love you like this, I pray you would know how rich you are way beyond any figure that this world might have to offer. You see, it's not about a great dinner or great dollars. It, it's about great love. And we've got to remember what Jesus said in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. How much did Jesus love you? He spread out his arms, and he said this much, and he died on a cross. So if he died for us, because he loves us, I pray we would love him back, and we would live for him. Amen?